I am often struck by the, uh, the handling of, of believers as it pertains to uh, death and, and how it, it is handled. Um, Maggie and I had the chance to, to be at Grace Community Church. We're originally from Southern California for a few years and, and got to see it firsthand there and get to see it firsthand here. Um, I say that not so much in praise of Rod, though it, I admire you. I really do. Uh, but in praise of God, because there is a hope that is true. And so in the midst of even pain, pain so great as unexpected death, the, the way that it is handled is so different than the way that this world handles it. And I am I'm thankful for that, Rod, the way you handle it. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> it is an inspiration, for sure. Let's jump into God's word before I start crying um, with Rod. But stand firm has been the theme of our uh, lesson for the book of Peter. And as you can see today, and as Rod mentioned already, we, we arrive at the conclusion at the end of this wonderful, wonderful book. I do hope that it has been as great a blessing for you as it has been for me. And undoubtedly, God's sovereignty is even at work this morning in that what the book has to do with is suffering and suffering right, suffering in a Christian manner, standing firm in one's faith as we suffer through this world. And our topic of study this morning, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. But the title of today's lesson is the same as that of the theme that we have experienced through this book, which is Stand Firm. And as we jump into the lesson, I'd like to frame it for us pretty quickly and give us the, the, the framework for which we should or through which we should view our lesson this morning. If there is one thing that we should walk away with this morning, it is the clear-cut message that Peter provides that we as Christians stand firm in the midst of suffering, in the midst of this imperfect world that provides so much suffering for the Christian, we stand firm. And that is underscored for us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. That is the, the, the central theme of our lesson this morning. By way of outline i'll just give you guys and i'll stay here for for a little bit longer because i know you don't have a handout and you're taking notes or if you're not i'll let your eye observe the outline this morning but by way of outline there are three major points that are provided for us this morning it's a it's a concise outline this morning it's it's three main points and the outline's applicability for us this morning is enhanced if we ask the following question. How do we stand firm? How does the Christian stand firm? 
The answer is given to us by way of this outline. We, we stand firm by maintaining first a right thinking. We, we stand firm as Christians through suffering, second, by maintaining a continued hope. And finally, we stand firm as Christians through suffering by maintaining a proper doxology. That is the outline for us this morning. Let's jump into our first point this morning, a right thinking, a right thinking. Read verses 8 and 9 with me. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Several subpoints in this first point this morning, the first of which is godly attitudes. I want to look at these godly attitudes in the first part of verse 8. Self-control can really be understood when we read, be of sober spirit, there in verse 8. Self-control can be substituted there for being of sober spirit. And vigilance can be substituted there as a point or an attitude when we read, be on the alert. These two godly attitudes that are provided for us being of sober spirit or, or having self-control or being on the alert or being vigilant are really uh, two attitudes in a list that Peter started back in verse 5. If you were here last week, you, you got to enjoy the, the wonderful job that Corbett did with, with teaching on these attitudes and addressing these attitudes and and how they are to operate in the life of the believer. But when we read in verse 8, to be of sober spirit and be on the alert, I want you to understand that these are two godly attitudes that are actually part of a list that is started in verse 5. And beginning in verse 5, and you can trace back there to verse 5 if you'd like, but the ideas, the attitudes that are displayed that should be present in the life of a Christian are submission. Christians should be submissive in this earth. In the face, in the midst of suffering, we should be submissive. We should walk with humility. Verse 5b through 6. We should walk with trust. Verse 7. And then that leads us to verse 8. We should walk with self-control and vigilance. Peter's broader point here in providing this list of godly attitudes that should be present in our lives relates really to a spiritual mind. Follow me here for just a little bit, if you would, please, because it's not something that we think of as Christians very often, but it is foundational to the Christian life, that of a spiritual mind, of, of having a correct spiritual mind. In other words, Peter's point 
in providing this list of godly attitudes is that standing firm as Christians in the midst of suffering necessitates our mind's engagement. Mindless suffering does not beget standing firm in Christianity. When we are in the midst of suffering, to ignore our suffering or to put it aside and willfully or unwillfully say, I'm just not going to think about it and have that as an approach to getting through suffering, that does not lead to standing firm in one's faith. In fact, it leads to the opposite. Mindless suffering does not beget standing firm. Sadly, many so-called Christians reject the development of a spiritual mind. Maggie and I come from a charismatic background, and I can relate to you so many conversations with so many beloved brothers and sisters uh, of that persuasion that, that are apprehensive to developing a spiritual mind, apprehensive to engaging the mind's faculty when suffering. And it, and it has to do with this false belief that suffering cannot be processed through thought, that, that instead it is, it is rather mystical in nature and, and should therefore not be pondered. It, it, it shouldn't be thought of when we suffer. It should just be ignored by our, by our mind, hoping that the suffering just goes away. Pastor MacArthur says about this specific issue, such mystical mindlessness is the antithesis of how God is to be known. And I agree. You can turn there with me if you'd like. Psalm, I'm going to give you two uh, verses here. Psalm chapter 32, verses 8 and 9. Psalm 32, verse 8 and 9. The psalmist Writing says, listen, pay close attention, please, to what he says. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. You notice, you notice these words? Instruction and teaching and counsel cannot occur, does not occur without a proper thinking through these processes. Verse 9, do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check, otherwise they will not come near you. You don't have to turn here. You're welcome to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18 says the following, these, these iconic Christian words, come now, let us reason together. God, speaking through Isaiah, invites, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow, though they are red like crimson, 
they will be like wool. These verses in Psalm 32 and Isaiah chapter 1 confirm that we as Christians can in fact know God. We can know God. And they also confirm for us that knowing God requires our mind's faculty, requires purposeful engagement of our thinking as we endeavor to know God. We come to know God and grow in our knowledge of God by reading and understanding His Word. That is how we know God. Again, active engagement of our mind. Peter's point is that as our understanding of God grows, so does our faith. It grows up to the point that we reach a maturity in Christ where we can stand firm in the midst of suffering. We, we grow in our understanding of God, in our knowledge of God, as we read His Word. And that understanding, that knowledge, leads to a maturity that enables the believer to what? To stand firm in his or her faith even through the worst of suffering. The point is clear here. It is that thinking rightly about God, thinking rightly about trials, thinking rightly about suffering is a prerequisite to standing firm. And these attitudes that are mentioned here, beginning in verse 5 and ending in verse 8, which we are dealing with, they are necessary they are a must in the life of a christian who will know god let me break them down for us very quickly be a sober spirit he says in verse eight this is a familiar word for for the receivers of peter's letter it is also a familiar idea because he's already dealt with it chapter one verse 13 and chapter four verse seven he uses that same word that same phrase this is an idea that he has talked to these dispersed christians about already physically it has the meaning of of self-control related to alcoholic intoxication basically don't get drunk be 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 sober right that's pretty straightforward be be sober don't get drunk with alcohol but but Peter's point here is, is more spiritual. There's a spiritual connotation to what he says, be of sober spirit. It is self-control still, but it is related to self-control of intoxicating oneself with this world. James says, remaining unstained in chapter 1, verse 27 of his letter. And, and John, in 1 John Chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 puts it this way, not loving the world. Be of, be of sober spirit. Don't, don't intoxicate yourself with this world to the point that you are stained by it, that you are affected by it. Be on the alert. This means here to be watchful or stay awake. And this is a favorite phrase of mine because it's one that I often use with my three boys. 
as I'm clapping my hands to get their attention. Stay awake! And it's not that they're falling asleep. It's just that they've, you know, dozed off into outer space somewhere most of the time or I, I just need to get their attention for some reason. But that's the idea. Stay awake. Be alert. The idea of, of not dropping our guard. Now, the next sub point that we jump to here will provide added context to this attitude. But, but to clarify the thought process of Peter here, spiritual self-control and vigilance are godly attitudes which mark the life that has right thinking about God and suffering. And notice why they are necessary as we jump into our second point. They are necessary specifically in this verse because of our adversary. Second part of verse 8 there. Notice the description that is given of, of the adversary. First, notice the pronoun, the personal pronoun there, your. Your. It is an important and purposeful, purposeful pronoun because it underscores the fact that this adversary that is discussed in verse 8 is not some adversary that, that is not personal. No, it, it is. It is a personal adversary. This adversary is not only an adversary to God, it is an adversary to you. It is an adversary to me, it is your adversary. The description follows in 8b there. Your adversary, the devil. The Greek here for adversary is antirikos. It's a legal opponent, an accuser. And, and the Greek here for devil is diablos. It's a malicious enemy. So it, it, it's not this suspended idea or impersonal thing. No, it, it is the person of the devil, the adversary, our, our accuser before God, our malicious enemy. After he describes this adversary, notice the, the spiritual metaphor that he uses here. He says that, that this adversary, the devil, roars. He's a roaring lion on the prowl. And what does he do? He, he's, he's seeking to devour. I thought this, this picture was, was appropriate. There were so many pictures to choose from, and my imagination got the best of me. I spent way too much time trying to look for a picture because there were so many cool pictures of lions and prowling lions, and I was looking for the right one, and and then I finally thought, well, this is appropriate here, isn't it? Because you can barely see the guy, right? You can barely see him. Devour there in verse 8 means literally to gulp down. If you have young children, specifically young boys, you know exactly what that looks like. Gulping down. But there is a malicious intent to this devouring from our adversary. Peter's imagery here is vivid and it is appropriate. Though, though roaring is part of the description that Peter provides for us, is part of the metaphor in his description, so often it seems that, that the devil's attacks on our lives are subtle. And that's why I thought this picture was, was appropriate. 
Because he may be roaring here, and I just can't hear him, but I know I can't see him. That's usually how Satan's attacks come on our lives, unexpectedly, unforeseen, subtly. That's, that's the enemy hiding, just waiting to gulp down any Christian life's circumstances and seasons, especially seasons of suffering, especially seasons of pain, often provide great success for the devil's attacks because our self-control and vigilance are at those moments most weakened. And so you can see how appropriate it is that Peter reminds us to, to not let our guard down. How appropriate it is that Peter reminds us to maintain self-control. Because attacks will come, and they will come subtly. And if we are weakened in our vigilance, if we are weakened in our self-control, the devil will have great success in his attack against us. He will gulp us down. But notice our next subpoint. <clears throat> our instructions for battle. Look at verse 9. The first part of verse 9, we are told to, to resist him firm in our faith. Resist here literally means to take a stand. Resist the devil. And firm, that word there, firm in 9a, literally means solid. Solid in what? Solid in your faith. So resist the devil. Take a stand against the devil. Firmly, solidly in your faith. This rings true for me more so than most as a former charismatic, where I have been taught that, that I can wrangle the devil and that I can, I can pray against his powers and, and, and bind him up and, and all sorts of phony baloney jargon. But the reality is that nowhere in Scripture does a Christian have that kind of authority outside of a specific time for the apostles. But, but the Christian, you and I, we, we, we can and are called, in fact, to resist Take a stand against the devil. But not in our own strength, but rather in, in our faith. Solidly in our faith in God, in Christ. Peter's instruction for the spiritual battle is that we take a solid stand against the devil. And that the foundation for the solid stand be rooted in our faith of God. Finally, to wrap up this first uh, section here, this first point, our shared experiences. Our shared experiences. Look at the last part of verse 9 there, standing firm uh, through suffering, knowing that we, we share the same experiences. They are being accomplished by your brethren. What's the idea here? So, so often, and, and specifically in times of suffering, we, we are led to believe falsely that we are in isolation. That, that we are the only ones in the world that are suffering through this specific thing. 
Again, a tactic of our adversary to draw us away and, and weaken us in our thinking of God. Peter here combats that idea and, and, and provides comfort for the Christian by telling him, no, there, there's a faithful remnant that God has that is also suffering these same sufferings with you right now. We're not alone. We're not alone. We're comforted by God and we're comforted by, by brothers and sisters that have suffered either currently with us or previously, but can help us through our suffering. There's great comfort in that, but it all ties back to having, maintaining, living in a right thinking when it comes to God and suffering. This leads to our second point this morning, which is a continued hope. Look at verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself, and notice what he does here, God himself will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. First subpoint this morning for the second point is a temporary suffering. If, if, if we are to stand firm in our faith as Christians through suffering, we must not only have a right thinking of God and suffering, we must also have a continued hope. This continued hope laid out for us in verse 10 is first a temporary suffering. You have to know that suffering Suffering, no matter how great, is only temporary. It is only temporary. Now, some translations of the Bible here in verse 10 start with and. Grudem argues here that the conjunction but is more appropriate than and. The NASB version that I read avoids both conjunctions altogether and simply states after. And I love that. And I mention that to you because it underscores the reality that suffering is a certainty in the life of the Christian. And if we are uncomfortable with that thought, I encourage us this morning to become comfortable with that thought. It is not a great thing to think of. Nobody says when they wake up in the morning, I can't wait to suffer. And that's not the attitude that God calls us to. But we must know that when we live our lives as Christians in this ungodly world, we will suffer. We must know that because many times of the adversary's attacks on our lives, we will suffer. And so he uses this word after to underscore it will happen. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. After you have suffered. But, but herein lies the, the hope. It is momentary. It is temporary. How long exactly? My youngest, I've told you this before, my youngest, James, um, is, is infamous in our house for asking questions. 
And I do have to confess to you, he'll listen to this inevitably when he's older, and that's okay because I'll have to respond for many sins. But um, he, he does reach the level of annoyance many times with the questions that he asks. He is able to tire out even his mother. And when a boy tires out his mother, that is saying something. He certainly tires out his father, and he definitely tires out his brothers with the questions that he asks. One of the questions that he asks all the time is, how long? How long? We're going to church. How long are we going to be there? He wants to know, right? We got a wedding to go to. How long? Uh, what's, you know, he has to know, right? Because the, the, the comfort for him is that it's not going to last forever. <laughs> right? It, we will come back. He'll be able to kick his shoes off play his video games or mess with the dog or I don't know, whatever it is. But the comfort is, I'm not going to be at that wedding forever. And so you understand by that way of humor, the the point that Peter is making, how, how long maybe we are tempted to ask as Christians, it is a temporary suffering, Edwin, but, but how long? We don't know exactly. We just, we just know that Peter says that after we have suffered for a little while. And and it's purposely phrased that way, in my opinion. It's purposely phrased. And and you guys, guys, along with myself, have seen that that for whatever reason, the, the, the length, the amount of time that a Christian suffers in this world varies from Christian to Christian. Some, some Christians have been blessed with a tremendous amount of suffering and have been suffering for a long time. And and other Christians, not so much. It's been sporadic. But I can't tell you exactly how long. It's just for a little while. That in and of itself, a little while, should be of great comfort for us. It could be our entire earthly life, and that is a little while compared to our eternity with God. Second point here, second subpoint, excuse me, is an everlasting glory. So we have a temporary suffering, and we have an everlasting glory in this continued hope. The second part of verse 10, notice what, what Peter says, the God of all grace called you to his eternal glory in Christ, and he will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. As if the hope of a little while were not enough, Peter offers additional hope here for the believer, additional joy and comfort in the midst of suffering because our eternal glory is in Christ. In other words, our hope, our continued hope is in Christ. Not in something passing or fleeting, but in Christ alone. This hope originates with the God of all grace. What does that mean? It means that you and I have done absolutely nothing to deserve this continued hope that is ours as Christians. It is undeserved. It is unmerited. It is simply a continued hope that God has given his children out of his good pleasure. Not only does it originate with the God of all grace, it is found not in me, not in you. It is found in Christ. 
That is to say, the glory of eternity belongs to Christ alone. If you think about who was deserving to go to heaven, it is he who was already in heaven, and that is it. But this continued hope of the Christian is found in Christ, and we partake of this continued hope when we come into Christ. There is no hope of eternal glory apart from Christ. I want us to understand this point this morning. In the midst of a world that is oh so welcoming to any and every path and will die at the altar of openness and tolerance, it is amazing how fast that altar shows its true teeth of intolerance. But in in the midst of this world, I want to be very, very clear about this point. There is no other hope. There is no other way. There is no other path to heaven than through Jesus Christ alone. And it is only through Christ and his perfect sacrifice on the cross that we have a continued hope of future glory. And I would point out to you just very quickly, notice, notice how this continued hope culminates. And I, and I pray that this is of particular encouragement to us this morning. He says at the end of verse 10, Himself, speaking of God, he will perfect, he will confirm, he will strengthen, and he will establish you. And I don't know of any more beautiful picture of imputation than this. Because outside of Christ, I I don't have any perfection. Outside of Christ, I deserve no confirmation. I have no strength without Christ. And I am certainly not established in Christ without him. This is a beautiful picture of what is imputed to the Christian on behalf of Christ in this continued hope. His his righteousness for, for my sins. There is no more humbling thought than that. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 underscores this reality further. Verses 17 and 18. It's a verse that I walk with continually, or verses. Paul, of all people, had every right to write this. And he says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. It is my prayer that if you are suffering this morning, that you are comforted in your continued hope 
as a Christian, that you are comforted in the continued hope, in the reality of a temporary suffering and an eternal weight of glory. Move on to the final point this morning, which is a proper doxology. Verses 11 through 14. Read these with me, please. To him, verse 11, be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Sylvanus. Does anybody say Sylvanus? I don't want to offend anybody. Okay, I'll offend you anyway. It's Sylvanus. Stop saying Sylvanus. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Say Sylvanus if you want. Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying, and here it is, that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to all of you who are in Christ. Uh, you don't have to shout it out. You don't have to describe it. Just raise your hands if you would, please. How many of you are familiar with the idea, the definition of a doxology? Doxology is, is defined... <coughs> In the dictionary is a short hymn. Further, it is a short hymn of praises, usually added at the end of either canticles, psalms, or hymns. The third point here is a proper doxology. The, the Christian that stands firm in his or her faith must, must one, have a proper thinking. Second, must have a continued hope. And, and finally, third, must have a proper doxology. And, and you would ask yourself, and I think appropriately, why, why should I have a proper hymn, Edwin? Why, why should I have a proper hymn of, of, of God? And I, I would encourage us to think, yes, in, in terms of a hymn, in terms of a song, because every Christian ought to have a song of God, ought to have a praise in their mouth to God. Peter here, I think, means doxology more in terms of philosophy, in terms of thought, a, a proper frame, a proper doxology of God. What does a proper doxology look like? First, it includes biblical praise. Look at, look at verse 11. To him be dominion forever and ever, amen. I bet you that if we had a little exercise and we opened our Bibles to Psalm and, and just selected any Psalm, an overwhelming majority of us would end in a Psalm that praises God at its beginning. It's the doxology of praise. I, I will praise the Lord in the morning, Psalm says, David says. I, I will praise the Lord in the evening. I will praise the Lord continually. A proper doxology includes a biblical praise. And that word there is interesting. To him be dominion forever and ever. It, it, it is 
exactly what it reads there, dominion, a dominance. Why do we praise God? Well, we praise him because he is deserving of our praise. But, but quickly, let me just submit to you, I, I praise God because he is dominant over this world. He is dominant over you and I. He is God creator. Anything less, anyone less, is not worthy of praise. God is worthy to be praised because his is the dominion. He has power over heaven and earth. He gives and takes life. He is like no other. He is God. And so there shall continually be a praise in my mouth for God. His is the dominion forever and ever. Amen. A proper doxology next includes biblical truth. It includes biblical praise and it includes biblical truth. And how is this biblical truth informed? How is it developed in the life of the Christian Notice what he says in verse 12. I have written to you briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. And so the question just jumps off the page, doesn't it? What does this mean? I think the answer is self-evident, but I'll answer it anyway. The entirety of Peter's letter, what he has been preaching and proclaiming from the very beginning, and that is that the Christian has hope through the midst of suffering because of God, because of Christ, because of a merciful and forgiving God who sent forth his son to an undeserving people. I and you and we now have hope through intense suffering in this world. We have hope. That is the grace of God. Where is it informed? It is informed through Scripture a proper doxology is a doxology that includes biblical praise and it is a doxology that includes biblical truth. A casual attitude to the reading of God's word leads to casual living. And casual living leads to a dropping of my guard. I and you, we cannot be casual about reading God's word. It is what informs us of our hope. It is what informs us of this true grace that verse 12 speaks of. It is what energizes us to stand firm in this grace. Maggie and I are from Southern California, and, and you know we never went to a bunch of places that we should have gone in Southern California uh, for a lot of different reasons. Um, one of the places that we never went to, and, and I regret somewhat, is Yosemite. 
or as the homies used to say in the hood, Yosemite. Never went to Yosemite. <laughs> never made it. And the reason I say that we never made it to Yosemite is because they have these enormous trees. Right? Everybody heard of these trees? Biggest trees in the world, so they say. I've seen pictures of these trees, and man, do they look impressive in the pictures. But one of the things that, that really strikes me about these, these enormous trees in Yosemite is that they've been through some stuff. Been through floods, fires, natural disasters. And they are so big, so firmly rooted that it just doesn't matter. High flood, fire, they remain. They remain. That's, that's the idea of, of standing firm. Just, I'm not going to be moved. And, and it, it's not through my own strength. If it were up to me, I would have been moved from my Christian faith years ago. It is, it is through God's mercy, his election, his grace. But, but the idea must exist in the Christian, I'm not moving. The adversary can throw whatever he's going to throw my way. Life can offer whatever it's going to offer. I'm not moving. Through the grace of God, I am not moving. Finally, proper doxology includes biblical fellowship. I'll say this quickly. We just have a couple of minutes left. It's interesting, you know, I thought, like, Lord, how am I, how am I going to talk about verse 13 and 14? I don't, what am I going to say about greeting each other with a, with a kiss of love? Am I going to instruct everybody that they must start kissing each other? Then I imagine what Jeff would say. <laughs> yeah, that's about what I thought you'd say, Pops. Yep. <laughs> nope, not going to start instructing each other to kiss each other with with a kiss of love, but, but notice she, verse 13, she who is in Babylon chosen together with you sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. She, there's a lot of back and forth about what, you know, who is, is referenced there in, in verse 13. It is, uh, by, by most accounts, a, an individual, a woman, who is in not Babylon, but metaphorically Rome. She's, she's in Rome, she, she has been converted, and, and she is sending sweet greetings to, to her fellow brethren along with Mark. Mark, the writer of the gospel. Mark. They, they, they greet the suffering Christians as a way of comfort. And he says in verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to all of you who are in Christ. Uh, do you guys know Matt Luno? Matt didn't know that I was going to talk about him this morning, and he doesn't come to Countryside anymore. He goes to North Lake, so I can talk about him all I want. But 
If you know Matt, you know that when he sees you and he knows you, um, you're, you're going to have to prep your body for what will be altogether a, a, a godly but most inappropriate hug that you are about to receive. And it's just because of the way he's built, right? Just a bit taller than me, but stocky and just strong and built like an ox. And when he hugs you, it, it, it is an experience. <laughs> and the reason I bring this up is because I thought, like, well, how do I say hi to, to my beloved friends at church? You know, and, and I thought, I, I usually hug them. I'm guilty of these inappropriate hugs many times. Uh, with, with men, I should clarify, okay? With women, you understand there's, there's a, a, a bit of, of uh, you know, I don't do that with women, all right? Except if it's, it's, if it's my wife. Um, but uh, th- there's, there's a looking forward to. There's, there's a, a joy. When I see my friends here at church, I, I want to hug them. I want to hug especially the ones that don't like to be hugged. <laughs> I love it. But why do I love it? It's not something inside of me. It, it, it's, it's something that has been given to me. It is the love of the brethren. I, I, I love to do that because I love Christ. I love them because I love Christ. And that's, that's the idea. There, there is comfort in simply a godly greeting to one another. Saying hello. Knowing that you are my brother or sister in Christ. Suffering like I am suffering. And so, in conclusion, I ask just one question, and that is, how am I suffering? How am I suffering? How am I doing? I think that as we wrap this letter up, it gives us an opportunity to briefly survey ourselves, briefly grade ourselves, and and pray. Lord, strengthen me. Strengthen me, especially through my suffering. Let's, Let's pray. Father, we are incredibly thankful. We are humbled by your mercy and your grace and all of your undeserved goodness, Lord. Humbled that we uh, wrap up yet another book in your word. And I do pray that as we have studied your word together, Lord, we have grown in our knowledge of you. We have come closer to you. We have been strengthened. I confess that we do not suffer as Christians many times. I pray that you would forgive us for that, Lord. And I do pray that you would strengthen us when we find ourselves like these Christians of First Peter did, dispersed through various trials, through suffering, much of, what, much of which was unjust, Lord. I pray that we would be reminded, reminded of you reminded of your mercy, of your goodness, of our continued hope. 
Help us to have a proper doxology, Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.